0: Isaiah 62 is the scripture reading for this evening. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name." Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and Thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence. And give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. And the sons of the stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it. And praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Lift up a standard for the people. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion... Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verses 4 and 5. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Now Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how does God view you? How does God... Who is the great reality in our life, the one with whom we have to do, the one who is the great judge overall, and who sees us and who knows us perfectly and accurately? How does God view you? Well, in the passage we look at this evening, we are told how God views us. We are told how God views his church. The text says he calls us. He calls us Beulah. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. And his purposes with us are to bless us. We need to know that again tonight. His purposes with us are to bless us. Us. We who, in the estimation of the world, are but the offscouring of the world. We who are a remnant in the midst of a world of wickedness, who who are judged by others in so many ways, judged perhaps maybe to be naive or to be bigoted, maybe judged by others to be those falling under the wrath of God. We who know ourselves to be of ourselves nothing but sinners and of ourselves rebels against God, the text says this about us. About you. God delights in you. And the text says God rejoices over you, and the text says God's purposes with you are to bless you. And this last part of Isaiah is known for its comforting passages, and, and you probably have a couple of these passages memorized. Think of Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Think of Isaiah 41 verse 10. We already had it read to us. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Think of Isaiah 49 verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. There are many other passages like this. These chapters are rich with comfort. And now here in Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, although perhaps lesser known, lesser well known, we have another one of these marvelous words of comfort for God's people. And maybe also tonight you children will learn a new word. The word Hephzibah. We take as our theme, Hephzibah, the Lord delighteth in thee. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the name itself. Second, we look at the wonder of receiving this name. And then third, we look at the reason for why we are given this name. Now, in order to understand the text, we really need to understand the circumstances Uh, surrounding Isaiah 62 and God's people in Isaiah 62. In Isaiah 62, the prophet is speaking to God's people who are in the Babylonian captivity. Now, in actuality, Isaiah lived about 150 to 200 years before the Babylonian captivity. But as a true prophet, he, he looks ahead, he sees God's people in their misery in the captivity, and he brings them a word of comfort. And he brings them a word of comfort because in the captivity, God's people were going to be uh, in misery. God's heavy hand of chastisement and judgment was going to be upon them. The people will be completely removed from the land of Canaan. The temple will be completely destroyed. All their houses and all their farms will be completely destroyed. And it will be as if the entire land of Canaan has been forsaken and left desolate. That's why in the beginning of verse 4, Isaiah writes, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land be termed any more desolate. Because that's what the land of Canaan was being referred to as. That's what the land of Canaan looked like in the Babylonian captivity. It was forsaken, it was desolate. Because when God's people were brought into the captivity, there the land lay in ruins. In fact, this is not just how the land looked, but this is how the people themselves looked in the captivity of Babylon. This is how the people looked even from the viewpoint of their own sins and gross iniquities. They were forsaken. They were desolate. As we sang just a moment ago, by Babel's streams we sat and wept for memory still to Zion clung. The people at the river Chebar were experiencing what it was or, or what it must feel like to be forsaken. The people were experiencing desolation. What's interesting about these words is that these are words also used in connection with a marriage relationship. Think of a marriage relationship. A woman who has been abandoned by her husband. She would be a woman that would be termed Forsaken. That, that's the language that you would use to refer to her. Forsaken. And now what would that woman look like? A woman forsaken of her husband without any means to support herself. Well, she would appear desolate. She was dispossessed. That is, no one possessed her anymore. No one was taking care of her and maintaining her anymore. And so she was desolate. As you may know in the Old Testament, a widow a woman without her husband, was a picture of poverty. The picture of poverty. The picture of bondage to a hard and cruel life with no way out. And now that same language is being used to refer to the land of Canaan. And that's language being used to refer to God's people in Babylon. It was as if with the Babylonian captivity, God had separated himself from his wife for a time. So that she might know that she was not living properly, faithfully in her relationship with the Lord, and, and she might learn to turn from her sinful ways. That, after all, was part of the reason for the Babylonian captivity. God's people had played the harlot. God's people had defiled themselves with their sins. That's, that's what the first part of Isaiah is about, chapters 1 through 39, and it begins right away in Isaiah chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, you read, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even unto the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. God there emphasizes the great sins of the people of Israel. And He tells them that it's because of their sins that they will be brought into Babylonian captivity. And it's for that reason that they will be called forsaken and desolate. That's even how the other nations will speak of them, as if their God has forsaken them. Those are the circumstances surrounding God's people in Isaiah 62. This is a word for God's people in captivity. However, what's striking in the text is that God now tells His people that there is coming a day when their circumstances will change. Although their chastening will be hard, God will not cast them off forever, but God will take them back. And the very fact is, what God does with His people, bringing them into captivity, He does out of His love for them. He brings them into captivity. He makes them to suffer so much loss, exactly so that He might preserve unto Himself a remnant, a church. And in the text, what God says is this. He will take His people back And He will even give them a new name. You read of that in verse 2. And the Gentiles shall see Thy righteousness, and all kings Thy glory. And Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. And now we think of our Old Testament history, and we we know that being given a new name is something significant. It means a new beginning. In the Old Testament, when God changed your name, that meant something. Something. Remember, think of how God changed Abraham's name. Instead of simply being Abraham, exalted father, God gave Abraham the name Abraham, a father of a multitude, many nations. Or think of Jacob. Jacob means heel holder. But no longer will he be called Jacob, but he will be called Israel, prince with God. And now here in Isaiah 62, God has the same thing for the nation as a whole. The name of His people will be changed. Thou shalt no longer be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land be called desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. These are the new names that God will give His people. And these are special names. As the text itself indicates... The name Hephzibah means my delight is in her, for the Lord delighteth in thee. My delight is in her, or my pleasure is in her. And again, think here of a marriage relationship. These are the terms God is using in this passage. Think of a relationship between a husband and a wife, where the husband takes his delight in his wife. Think of the Song of Solomon in chapter 4, where Jesus says to his church, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one look of thine eyes, with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. God says, no longer will you be termed forsaken, but I'm going to sweep you off your feet. I'm going to sweep you away in my arms. God says, I take great joy, great delight In my union with my people. That's the name Hephzibah. And then there's the name Beulah. And as the text indicates, the name Beulah means married. At the end of verse 4, thy land shall be married. Now that might sound a bit confusing. Thy land shall be married. Maybe to better understand it, we could once again use the word possessed. Versus the word dispossessed. Thy land shall be possessed. Thy land shall be married. Thy land shall be inhabited. Again, think of a marriage relationship. No longer will you be alone. No longer will you be dispossessed by one who has abandoned you. But you will be, you will be possessed. You will be maintained. You will be cared for by your husband. Verse 5 goes on to say, your children will marry you, your sons will marry you. And what that means is this, your children will possess you, your children will inhabit you, your children will live in the church and will maintain the church. And of course, in the Old Testament context, the idea is the people of Israel will live in the land of Canaan once again. The children of Israel, the children of the church, will once again take possession of the land and be married to the land and take care of the land. Again, look at verse 5. Verse 5 is simply repeating the idea found in verse 4. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Just as a young man takes great joy in his newly married bride. Just as a young man is eager to maintain his wife and possess his wife and live with her and enjoy her presence, so the children of the church will rise up and take care of the church. And just as a bridegroom would sing for his bride on their wedding day and rejoice over her with singing, so God will rejoice over his people. That was evidently a custom back then, that the bridegroom would take his bride and he would sing over her on their wedding day, just so God will rejoice with singing over his bride, his church. In congregation, we should realize that this kind of language is not just found here in Isaiah 62 verse 5, but but other passages in the Bible speak this same way. Just think of the whole book of the Song of Solomon. A whole book is devoted to, to this kind of language. But then also Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, we read, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. It was the custom, as I just said, it was the custom for the young man to sing for his bride. And here God says, He will rejoice over His church in the exact same way. God will give His people a new name. Just think of that too. Just think when a young man and a young woman get married and the woman receives a new name. She receives the name of her husband. The name her husband gives her. Just so, God will give His people a new name. The name Hephzibah. So that's that's the idea. That's the, the idea of this verse. And what's interesting is this, the word Hephzibah was actually a name that was used in the Old Testament. King Hezekiah, his wife, was named Hephzibah. Hephzibah, my delight is in her. Hephzibah, my pleasure is in her. That's the meaning of the name Hephzibah. Well, that's a wonder, isn't it? It's a wonder that God's people should receive such a name. For God's people in the Old Testament, in the circumstances they were in, this was a wonder. Here are God's people, a people full of sins, a people full of putrefying sores, a people who's a stiff-necked and rebellious people who deserved only to be forsaken and left desolate. And, And she knew it. And yet the wonder is this. God takes delight in her. God loves her. She's the apple of His eye. And God loves her simply because He loves her. She's not deserving of His love. She could never earn His love. She could never earn any aspect of His love. She's not greater than any other nation. In fact, God says already in Deuteronomy, Israel was the least of all nations. But what does God say? God says, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen. God loves his chosen people. And there's nothing else about it. And and how do you explain it? He loves her because He loves her. He attaches Himself to her in a bond of love because He loves her, because He breathes after her. He loves her because He loves her. And He will come to her once again. And He will bless her and take her to Himself and delight Himself in her. The people will not be forsaken. Even, Even in Babylon, God was with them in Babylon. Even in Babylon she was not forsaken. Remember the the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory? It left the the temple and it went east to be with God's people in Babylon. They will not be abandoned. Oh yes, many people will abandon her. Many people will scoff at the church and point out where she is ugly and imperfect. But God will not forsake her. God will not abandon her because this is who God is. He is the God who delights in His chosen people. He is the God who keeps His covenant promises. He is the God who does not change. As He says in Malachi 3 verse 6, Ye shall not be consumed because I am the Lord. I change not. You deserve to be consumed, but I won't consume you because I have spoken my word of promise over you, and I keep my promise. I am, God is, the God of the unconditional covenant. This is the wonder of who God is. And that's God showing His glory in these passages in the Old Testament. Well, beloved, it's a a wonder for the Old Testament saints. It's a wonder for us too, because this is a word for us today as well. God delights in you. You are the church of God. You are His chosen people. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. You bring pleasure to the heart of God. That's quite something to put it that way, isn't it? It's a wonder because when we look at ourselves honestly, we ask ourselves, why us? And why me? We can say that as a church. We can say that as a denomination. We can say that as families. We can say that as individuals. Honestly, child of God, when you look at yourself, do you see anything in yourself in who you are by nature, that even gives you pleasure. No, we don't take any delight in ourselves and who we are by nature. Certainly not. If we know anything about our own hearts, we see so many faults, so many blemishes, so many backslidings, so many failures and sins. In our Christian walk, we, we are not serving God with that zeal as we are bound. We are lethargic. We're slow to do even the least thing. We're often selfish and proud. We look at ourselves and we say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am. I am like Israel of old. We're no different in who I am of myself. From the sole of my foot even to the head, there is no soundness in me, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And here this evening, in this church, there's no one who makes himself to differ from another. We've all had our share of sin and backslidings, and putrefying sores. There's none of us here this evening that makes him stand out from the crowd and that can say, I'm different than others. And yet the Lord, the Lord looks upon us and says, you bring me delight. I call you Hephzibah because you bring me delight. You thrill my heart. That's a wonder when you consider who we are Left to ourselves, of ourselves. It's a wonder also when you consider the one who is taking delight in us. This is not just another person, this is God. And who is God? To whom will you liken God? How can we even begin to describe the majesty and the glory of God? He is the God who is so holy that he cannot behold iniquity. He is the God before whom the angels themselves shield themselves and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He is the God who says in Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. He is the God who lives forever and ever. Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom is from generation to generation He is the one before whom the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he is the one who doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? He is the God who is so radiant in his glory that when he passed by Moses, he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and then he only showed Moses the backside of his glory. Lest Moses be slain by the glory of the Lord. He is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in truth. He is the one who is the sum total of all infinite perfections. And yet the text before us this evening is telling us that this highly exalted God says concerning us, my delight is in you. O beloved congregation, You don't read in the Scriptures that God delights in the snow-capped mountains or that God delights in the sparkling stars in the middle of the night or in the thunderous waterfalls. But what you do read in Scripture is that God takes His pleasure in us. We do not find it written that even the holy angels in heaven give God's soul delight Nor does God say to the cherubim and the seraphim, you shall be called Hephzibah. But he does say that to poor, fallen creatures like ourselves, debased and totally depraved of ourselves, yet redeemed and saved by his grace. He does say that to a people who are poor. He does say that to a people who have gone through so many sorrows and so many heartaches, and who continue even to go through such heartaches day by day. To us who are nothing of ourselves but fallen, sinful, needy creatures. God says to you, my delight is in you. I call you Hephzibah. To you who are broken in so many ways. Who sometimes feel like a broken vessel. Shattered in a thousand different pieces. To us who maybe have distressing questions that vex our souls. And they flood our minds. And we ask ourselves, why does God do the things that he does? God says, nevertheless, to you, my delight is in you. I call you Hephzibah. And again, with this language, God comes down to our level and He uses language that, that we can understand. He uses language that refers to the most intimate and passionate of joy, that language of the love of marriage. And He says, this is how I take my delight in you. By sovereign grace alone, I draw you into my fellowship, and I cause you to experience the riches of my blessing and my favor. And he causes us to know that he delights in us. He takes us to himself, and he changes who we are. So that we are called Hephzibah and Beulah. It's a wonder, beloved. It's a sheer wonder of grace. But now, we need to come to the crux of the matter and have the explanation Why? What's the reason for this delight? What's the explanation for it? Is it because of something in us? Is it because of anything that we have done? Oh, no. It's not because of anything we have done. As Isaiah goes on to say only two chapters later, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Some of the Catechism students memorized that recently. He says, we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The reason God takes delight in us is not found in us. No, but what is the reason? Well, the reason is found in Jesus Christ alone. And the reason is found in God Himself. Although Jesus is not mentioned here in this verse explicitly, this really is what the second half of Isaiah is all about. That's that's why you have so many comforting passages in this section. That's why you always have to read uh, Scripture in its context. This is the whole context of Isaiah 40 through 66. Over and over again, who is the one being mentioned in this part of Isaiah? It's the suffering servant, the servant of Jehovah, Jesus Christ. Think about Isaiah 42 verse 1. What does God say? Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. He says it right there. My delight is in him. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And then think of Isaiah 53, that well-known passage. It's found right smack in the middle of this whole section. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of man, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace, the the chastisement that would bring about our peace, was upon Him. And with His stripes, the stripes He bore, we are healed. Why does God delight in us? God delights in us because God delights in Jesus. God's delight is never separated from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one in whom God delights. But now, beloved, this is the blessed reality. This is the blessed reality of your life. You are in Jesus Christ. We who belong to Jesus Christ, this is our identity. We who believe God's word, we who trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we belong to Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? And what has Jesus done? Well, we can put it this way. Jesus is the one who took our name upon himself. Jesus is the one who took that name, forsaken one, on himself. Jesus is the one who took the name desolate on himself because he is the one who took our place on our behalf. And he is the one who for the sake of his bride, his church, became the forsaken one, the forsaken one of the Lord. Because he's the one who came in the flesh. He's the one who was born under the law. He's the one who's born under the curse of the law. And he's the one who came as our mediator and representative, taking the burden of our sins and the guilt of our sins upon his shoulders. And he is the one who, as it were, took our name upon himself. And he took that name all the way to the cross. And he even cried out in the deepest of suffering. He cried out, giving acknowledgement to this reality. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in his atoning death on the cross, he's suffered the punishment for all our sins. In his suffering, he's made the full payment for all our debts. He's redeemed us from all our sin and guilt. And his own perfect righteousness is imputed to us so that now it is just as if We had never sinned before. Furthermore, in his resurrection from the dead and through the imparting of his own resurrection life to us, we have been raised from spiritual death. And we have been made alive with the perfect life of Christ. Brought out of darkness into the communion of the life of God. Made new creatures in Christ. And in his exaltation at God's right hand, we also with him are set in heavenly places and made partakers of his perfect life of power and glory. He is the one who removes all our defilement and impurity. And he is the one who makes us as the bride fit for the bridegroom, fit for Jehovah, so that we are without spot and without wrinkle. So that in Jesus Christ, we are completely transformed. And Jesus took our name upon Him, that name forsaken, exactly so that we might receive this new name through Him. The name Hephzibah. The name Beulah. Married, possessed, maintained, and cared for. And belonging to Christ, united to Christ, we are clothed now with the beauty of Christ. In Jesus Christ, we're beautified with the beauties of God Himself. In us, who are in Christ, God sees His own attributes reflecting back to Him and in our beauty, or rather, God's own beauty shining in us and through us, God delights. One day, of course, the church and each member of the church will be made perfectly beautiful. One day we will be perfectly cleansed of all sin and all unrighteousness. One day we will be perfected as the bride of Jehovah God and we will live in perfect communion with the Lord. And on that day, the Lord will completely reveal His delight in His church and He will indeed rejoice over her as a bridegroom rejoicing over His bride. Because on that day, He will even bring us to the marriage supper of the Lamb and He will unfurl the banner. And over above our heads, the banner will read, Love. And we will enjoy the love of the bridegroom in glory. But already now we enjoy it. Already now we know who we are in Christ. Already now the Lord causes us to know that He delights in us. Already now we are able to experience the wonder of it all. This is your comfort in life and death. You belong to Jesus Christ. And here this evening in the worship service with this text and through this preaching... God calls us to experience it in a special way. Here this evening, God calls out to us and He says, Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember how I look at you in Jesus Christ. Oh, you may have all kinds of doubts. You may have all kinds of struggles. And others may say all kinds of cruel things about you. And call you forsaken. And call you desolate. The other nations around you might be wagging their head at you. But remember who you are in Jesus Christ. And remember how God looks at you in Jesus Christ. You are his Hephzibah. He takes his delight in you. He says, I want to commune with you. I choose to fellowship with you. Gather in my house. Enjoy my love. This is where I have chosen to dwell. Enjoy my grace and enjoy me taking my delight in you. Not because of who you are or because of what you have done, but because this is who I am and because this is what I have done with you. Oh, congregation, what a comforting word this must have been to those who were in the Babylonian captivity. Think about that. What a comfort that must have been to those who had lost so much. And if they had only looked at their circumstances from an outward point of view, with the physical eye, they would have said that everything was lost. There's no way they're getting back to Jerusalem. But by faith, they received this word of God. By faith, they believed this word of God, and they had hope in God. And this word of God comforted them. God is true to every word he speaks He's faithful to His covenant people. He is not ashamed to be called our God. Even though we would be ashamed. Because that's the difference between God and us. God is not ashamed to be called our God. And God also shows us in a very powerful way. He keeps His word. He did bring His people back from captivity, didn't He? And He did cause the children to take up the land and possess the land again. And he did send his suffering servant to save his people. And he worked all this history, all these events for the good of his church. God was true and faithful in every way. But beloved, this is not just God's, this is not just God's word for his people in Babylonian captivity. this is God's word for us this evening as well. You who know your own sins who know that of yourself you don't deserve anything different than God's judgment. This is God's word for you. Tonight, by faith, receive this word of God. Believe this word of God and hope in your God. Continue to hope in him. He has chosen you, beloved. He has chosen you as his elect and precious people. This is your blessed reality. This is these are your circumstances here on life, like here in your life on earth. God has chosen you to be vessels of mercy, to showcase His grace, to showcase His wisdom, and to showcase His faithfulness to His promises. He will work all things together for your good. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or that we can even think. He will supply all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And the good work work which He has begun in us, He will continue. He will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. He gives power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increaseth strength. He is Jehovah. He is the God of unchanging, holy, irresistible, powerful, redeeming, sanctifying grace. He is the God who delights to show mercy, who delights to forgive, and He is your God. And you, beloved, are His Hephzibah. The Lord takes delight in you. So wait upon the Lord. Trust in Him. Walk steadfastly in His ways, and He will show you His goodness. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, where else can we turn? We turn to Thee. Drive this Word into our hearts. Shape our attitudes by it. And give us that strong faith that embraces it with full confidence and joy. So that as we as a congregation continue to walk through this valley of tears and the shadow of death, we might know that thou art with us and thy goodness and mercy are pursuing us all our days so bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives in jesus name we pray amen